This podcast, number 847, with author Ashley Willens, is brought to you by Mark Bernstein, the author of a new book entitled The Fiscal Therapy Solution 1.0, Six Steps to Personal and Business Financial Health. In this podcast with Mark, we discuss how his fiscal therapy solution differs from the industry protocols and what he refers to as the brokerage model. If you want to rethink your strategy regarding your approach to saving, spending, and growing your portfolio, then I would highly recommend getting Mark's easy-to-read book. You may visit his website at https markjbernstein.com. That's M-A-R-C-J-B-E-R-N-S-T-E-I-N.com to learn more about his book. And now for our featured podcast, please listen to my interview with Ashley Willens, author of a book called Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life. Happy listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And joining us from Boston, actually Harvard University, is Ashley Willens. And she has a new book out called Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life. Boy, is that needed today, Ashley. Um, good day to you. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. And um, I know what it's like to be time bound. Um, I haven't totally figured it out, but your book gave me some clues into how to maybe plan my life so I'm not so <laughs> run by the clock itself. Um, but I'm going to let our listeners, Ashley, know a little bit about you because I always like them to know. Um, you're assistant professor at Harvard School in Negotiations, Organizations, and Markets. Uh, your new book has been out for a while now, not a long time, but out. Um, you received your PhD in social psychology from the University of British Columbia in November 2017 and started working as an assistant professor at Harvard uh, Business School in July of 2017. Uh, during your PhD, you were a member of UBC's Public Scholar Initiative and was funded by the Social Science and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Uh, in 2015 and 18, you were named the Rising Star of Behavioral Science through the International Behavior Exchange and Behavioral Science and Policy Association. Congratulations for that. You're a member of the Business and and Environment Initiative, which I actually went and looked that up, and a member of the Flourishing Program at Harvard Chan School for Public Health. Uh, more broadly, your research focuses on understanding how the daily and long-term decisions people make about time and money in their lives, relationships at work, impact their well-being. And if you want to learn more from her, we're going to have a link to her website, and we will have a blog on that. So, Ashley, you did a lot of research for this because you are a researcher. That's uh, that's who you are, and it's it's important to do research because you don't have data otherwise. So, you state that you became fascinated with the trade-offs people make between time and money when you were a PhD student. What did you learn from the thousands of surveys that were completed worldwide about the trade-offs between time and money? Because I think people will probably trade off, this would be my, what I'd say, they're probably going to go more toward the money than to actually have the time, and that's unfortunate. They should have more time. So what'd you learn? 
Yeah. So it's interesting. I've conducted surveys all over the world at this point, asking people, do you value time more than money or do you money, do you value money more than time? And what I see is that the split does depend on your demographic background. Like, um, so we do see some evidence that different people will prioritize either time or money, depending on life stage and, and different factors, which we can get into in a moment. But the most striking finding is that people who say that they value time more than money report greater overall happiness in their lives. What do I mean by happiness? So as a happiness researcher, I think about these terms in a particular way. So I'm really thinking about the overall life satisfaction that we experience when we take a step back, how satisfied do we feel with our lives overall? And I also think about the extent to which we experience positive and negative emotions on an everyday basis, the more emotional component of our happiness, if you will. And I see that the simple question of whether we value time more than money or money more than time predicts happiness to a similar extent as other demographic variables, like whether or not you're married or have a, a, a partner, which is really good for happiness. And it even holds controlling for other demographic variables, like how rich you are, what country you live in, what your family composition looks like, how much debt you have. So mm-hmm. we see this really reliable finding that people who value time over money have greater lives overall in part because they socialize more, they choose activities for more intrinsic as opposed to extrinsic reasons. So because they like doing something as opposed to because they have to. Um, and yet, to your point, even people who can truly afford to value time don't often value it as much as they should. So we see at best a 60-40 split between people who value time and people who value money And at worst, 80% of my samples say they value money more than time. And this matters because time poverty has become an increasingly pervasive societal problem. So people all over the world, 80% of working adults report feeling time poor, like they have too many things to do in a day and not enough time to do them. And these feelings of being overwhelmed by the demands of work and life also have a critical cost for our happiness. Well, and health. And, you know, and you have studied a lot. And I would think that if you looked back in history, because it's you don't just study current time as somebody in behavioral science, you're looking at uh, previously recorded time. You know, it the my perception is if I went back when I was a kid, I was born in 54. Okay, and we didn't have all this social media, we didn't have all this stuff buzzing in our ears and all these devices trying to consume our time and occupy our time and so on. What did you find about when you got in the depth of these surveys, um, this kind of addiction that's happened in our society around these devices, which are consuming so much of our time? And what is the, what is maybe the solution, Ashley? What can we do? Yeah, so we do exactly as as you observe or that you're you're alluding to here. And in large scale time diary data, which tracks how much people spend on working and leisure, we actually see since the 1950s, we have slightly more leisure time at our disposal, right? So objectively speaking, we have slightly more time available to us now than we did in the 1950s, in part because of modern conveniences. We have dishwashers, we have washing machines in every household, at least in more affluent countries like the United States. And we have technology that makes our work more efficient. Two generations, three generations back, my professors used to spend hours uh, 
conducting all of their data analysis by hand, that we have computers that can do that work in moments. And so our technology is saving us time, but simultaneously, it is also taking it away from us. So we see in in data that I've collected and some of my collaborators, that technology is not only creating what Bridget Schultz calls time confetti, so it's fragmenting our leisure into these mm-hmm. small, extractable units mm-hmm. of free time, that's shortening the amount of leisure that a little bit that we have, not a lot, so we still have more than we used to in the 1950s, but every hour might actually only be 50 minutes under- interrupted because we're constantly connected to our technology. But most importantly, to explain these time poverty bindings, feelings of being overwhelmed by the demands of work and life, our constant connection to technology pulls us out of the present moment and reminds us of all the other things we could or should be doing. So we're living in the imagined future, you know, (laughs) of what should, could, maybe we could do, right? Exactly. And that pulls us out of the present, creates goal conflict and makes us feel really stressed out. So in Mm -hmm. one example that I really like, there's a study that my colleagues ran where they assigned working adults at a science museum with their kids on a Saturday to one of two conditions. One condition, turn your alerts on, make sure you can hear them. The other condition, turn your alerts off, make sure you can't hear them. Then they had these parents walk their kids through the science museum. And at the end of the exhibit, they asked parents, how much meaning did you experience while you were spending time with your child? Mm -hmm. How stressed out did you feel? And they found that having your alerts on made the time that you spent with your child less meaningful in part because you were thinking about all the other things you should have been doing. Right. And that's a perfect example of this point is that technology is distracting us and filling our minds with other places that we could be at or work that we should be doing. I love Nereal's book called Indistractable. You know, it was on the show. And uh, the the reality is, is that um, we seem like, uh, I don't know how much study has been done on ADD, but I would say that we now live in a society today where they used to say, well, just executives were ADD. Well, it's not just executives anymore. It seems like everybody. Now, you state for a large number of people at all economic strata, and across many cultures, the best choices are not being made. Um, how would you recommend reversing that innate notion that time is money that you just talked about? Because, you know, oh, I just had Dr. Jim Lohr on here, um, and he's the um, High Performance Institute. And he was saying, look, it's energy. You know, it's how you expend your energy. And we only have so much energy. You know, at the end of the day, it's like, how much energy do you still have as a professor to do what you do, do an interview, um, you're pregnant at this time, you know, all the kind of things that you've got to do. And energy levels are really important. But what would you tell people about reversing this innate notion that they're going, oh, darn, I don't have enough money? Because society now has constantly, Ashley, in my estimation, put the extrinsic motivators out there like, well, I need a new this or I need a new that. I'm going to go chase this or I'm going to do that or I'm not enough or whatever it might be. So how do I get that out? Because that all takes money. And that's what people want is they they think they want. Then when they get it, we find that really it's not very satisfying. (laughs) Right? Yes, 
so I mean, this is a difficult problem, right? Because we're te- society tells us to be a good worker, we need to be constantly responsive. That right. constant responsivity is a proxy for commitment. Society tells us that more is better. That more right. money is going to mean we're more respected. Society even gives confers high status. Research suggests to people, at least in North American contexts, that always seem busy. We think the person who never has time in their calendar must be highly valuable since their time is so scarce. And yet in European cultures and in Italy in particular, one of my colleagues ran a a very fun study. They found that leisure confers high status. If you have more time off, you must be doing something right in life if you can still have a professional career. Um, And so it is worth recognizing that there are strong situational factors, social factors that are pushing us to focus more on money and less on time. But even knowing that, there are small, simple strategies we can take in the context of our own lives to really try to put time first, to push against some of these social and cultural scripts that tell us money is the thing that matters most or productivity is how to determine my self-worth and really cultivate a more time affluent life. So really identifying time traps is the first place to start, which we've been talking about. Um, You want to be thinking about where where are there opportunities in the context of your everyday life to realize when you might be prioritizing work or constant responsivity, and it's not necessarily improving the quality of your work. One phenomenon in the psychological literature that's very helpful for this is just the idea of the mere urgency effect. So when we're feeling stressed out and overwhelmed, which is so often, as we've already been talking about, we Mm -hmm. often gravitate toward working on small, low-level tasks, like checking our email, like scheduling a meeting. This is why your inbox goes to zero when you're working under a major project deadline, at least it does for me uh, some of the time. Uh, Maybe I'm a little better at it now that I've written a book on this topic Um, because it gives us this boost of competence, of self-efficacy. We feel like, oh, hey, we just got a few things done. Now we can build up some stamina to work on the harder thing. What we actually need to do is to create a work routine where we work on our most important and not urgent work first at the beginning of the day, in part by engaging in time blocking. Um, So we have some data suggesting if you put two two two-hour blocks on your calendar um, and hold that time as if it's your most important work meeting and you use it to work on important but not urgent work and turn off digital distraction, that this can significantly increase self-reported efficiency and reduce burnout when done repeatedly over the context of many weeks. So this is just one small example where you can see a psychological reason that we often are constantly connected and then try to put in a strategy or implement a strategy in your own personal life to overcome this. We also can think about taking other strategies in the context of our everyday lives. So I talk in the book really about three key strategies. We want to find time We want Mm -hmm. to fund time and we want to reframe time. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to walk quickly through each of them and then we can kind of talk a little bit more about them. But the first is this idea of finding. Do you mind me? Mind me while you're talking about them, I I don't stay right there. But a thought came up to me, you know, not that long ago, BJ Fogg was on here about tiny habits. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're talking about these things that we should put in order. How do we, as a social scientist, and this is what you study, help create that as a habit, a new habit? Because how long is it sustainable if I just talk about it versus trying to make it into a habit? Do you have any thoughts about that before we go on to the three things you just mentioned? 
Yeah. So, I mean, of course, uh, as a behavioral scientist, I am really interested in how to take this from theory and put it into practice. Right. I have a couple of thoughts about this. I write a little bit about it in the book. So one, we want to set default rules for ourselves. So we want to have rules that we set for ourselves about things we will do and things that we won't do and try to write them down and put them where that we will help guide Decisions. So I won't say yes to more than X of this type of activity over the course of six months. And then you have to write down every time that you do one of those activities. Um, another strategy is this public commitment. So relying on commitment devices and other people to help us accomplish our goals. My PhD student, Ariella Cristal, has a dissertation that she's developing on this idea that we rely on our willpower too much when we're trying to make changes in, to our habits in everyday life. So just trying to get situational strategies. So if we want to increase our fitness, well, then we're going to pay for a personal trainer and probably we should pay more money than we want to. So we feel like it's a true commitment device to actually following through on our exercise goals. And those things do tend to work more in practice, even related to digital distraction. There's some great research coming out showing that if we pay money to have an a blocker of our technology that we can't go on certain websites at certain times of day. That works really well for productivity and efficiency, but people don't like the feeling of having technology help solve their own problems. So they still want to rely on willpower more than commitment devices. So this is a, something we need to overcome. And then the third that I've thought a lot about, particularly related to time and work and, and where we put our focus is how can we build the work day, the structures of our lives mm -hmm. um, in a way that's conducive to being time affluent? So one example I talk a lot about, I've put into practice in my own life, which is disrupting habits um, that we have. So one habit I have is that I will go straight to my computer when I get out of bed. And so I've purposely disrupted that habit. I'm now not allowed. I have a rule that I won't check my work email within the first half an hour of when I get up in the morning. And I find that when I'm able to follow through on that goal or in that habit disruption, it changes my whole day because I have not just rolled out of bed and gone straight to my work computer. What's um, the reward that you get? What's the reward? So I'll have a really nice cup of coffee while oh, okay. sitting on the patio. So I'll have a really <laughs> positive experience. You, you're perfect. You, that's great because you need to positively reinforce this behavior. Change. Yeah, because I think, you know, look, we're in such a busy, hectic, rushed world. The rewards are so important. You're telling me that on one hand, we have so much leisure time, yet it doesn't feel like we do. Um and I don't know what the psychosis is of that, um, you know, but it does seem like it's a it's a conundrum uh, to some degree. Uh, you say since 1950, we've actually gotten more leisure time. But if you ask most people, they're probably going to say, well, we don't really have that much leisure time because we're driven by all this stuff. And it comes down to being driven, I think, more for the money and extrinsic versus intrinsic. If I was okay more in the intrinsic, I probably wouldn't be that driven. So go on if you would, because you had started mentioning the three things and I interrupted and I apologize, but I'm glad we had that little dialogue there. So go ahead. Yeah. And I will actually just briefly mention too, the psychosis we're talking about, about always being busy or feeling like we need to be busy is has an, a term in the psychological literature called idleness aversion. So uh, people as, and technology, uh -huh. as to your point, um, has actually increased this aversion uh, 
somewhat, at least the research would suggest. So my colleagues also have data showing that having alerts on in your phone does increase self-reported ADHD symptomology. You feel more anxious. You feel like you need to be filling your time and constantly busy. Mm -hmm. And so some of my colleagues have run some great studies on idleness aversion. One of them is they asked college students or they provided college students with a choice. You can sit in this room for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, and either be left alone with only your thoughts or blast yourself with mild electric shocks. And college students would rather blast themselves with mild electric shocks than be left alone in a <laughs> with room with their thoughts. <laughs> and it's, it's so good because it's it is it's it's not necessarily that we have more external demands, but we more. I think certainly we have internal, this sense of an internal need to always be filling our time um, and creating this idleness aversion. And it's not just college students. So representative samples of working adults also show people forego leisure. They'll forego vacation time because if they get it unexpectedly, like a boss is like, take Friday off. People are like, I don't know how to take Friday off. I'm not sure what I would do with that time other than work. So I'm not going to take it. I'm just going to work because I really, ah, like now I have to plan leisure. Like I don't, I don't know what my life is uh, if it's not working or being productive. So this idle time thing is, is really a kind of a, a key issue. So you, um, you mentioned in the book that being time centric is pro-social, which is a word that academics use to describe actions that benefit others. Speak with us about the outcome of the Good Samaritan study that was done. So this is a really famous study that is one of the first and most striking examples of the effects of time stress on helping behavior. So they took students, these were researchers at Princeton, um, and they they took a group of, of students who were studying to be ministers and they randomly assigned them to one of three conditions. Either they were told that they had to go give a lesson in the seminary and um, there was lots of time so they could take as long as they needed to get across campus to go teach this lesson on the Good Samaritan. This is where the name of the study comes from, mm-hmm. that the group was that they should probably like pick up the pace. They might run a little late. They had enough time, but they, they might be a little late. So they should probably get there pretty quickly. And then the third condition was told you're late. You're already behind. Like you really need to get there. Like they're waiting for you. And then they looked at the extent to which these students, again, who were studying uh, to, to be ministers and about to go deliver the good Samaritan uh fable uh, or, or, or biblical story, um, they then uh, had them all pass by a homeless person. Uh, or, well, it was a confederate um, who seemed uh, that they, you know, exactly like the Good Samaritan. They, they were not fully clothed. They were in need. They were crying out for help. And what they found is that these students totally ignored the person crying out for help on the way to go teach this class if they felt very rushed. Even if they felt a bit rushed, they were much less likely to notice this person. But when they were taking their time, they were at a leisurely pace, they were much more likely to make sure that this person was okay and to check in. And I love this study because we have also seen this, we also see this in our data, but it's such a striking example of how stress and feelings of overwhelm can get in the way of our most valued desires are the things that we care most about in our lives, the things that we want 
to do with our lives, that these feelings of stress in the moment of feeling rushed can really lead us to focus myopically on solving a problem, even at the expense of other things we really care about. And we see this in our data, people who feel more time affluent, they volunteer more. Same with people who prioritize time. They spend more time interacting in the context of their everyday lives. So in one study we ran, we found that people who value time more than money, when they came into the lab and had the opportunity to interact with someone they had never met, people who value time, who weren't worried about efficiency or productivity, spent 18% more time socializing with this peer they had never met, regardless of their extroversion or introversion. Right. Well, you know, that little study, the Good Samaritan one, um, it's like, how many times, and I can say this myself, when I was in a hurry and I saw someone broken down on the side of the road, but yet I was in a hurry and I drove right past. The good thing would have been to help the person on the side of the road, right? And that's the same thing. And that might be a smaller example because you don't know what's going on with that person on the side of the road, but your heartstrings are kind of pulled by it but not enough that time was more important to make sure you made the appointment versus calling somebody and saying, hey, I'm going to be running a little bit rate. I'm helping somebody. Now, you state the most obvious explanation for rising rates of time poverty is that we simply spend more time working than we used to. I would say that's true, and especially with the advent of the computer. And now look at this. Zoom. Uh, speak with us, if you would, about the six common time traps and what we can do to avoid those traps. Um, I know that you have a little some downloads that our listeners could get um, from your website, correct? So we'll put links there for that. Um, but talk about the six common time traps. Yeah, so we've started to talk a little bit about them already. So the first is that we value our money more than we value our time, in part because that's some of the, of the social cultural values around prioritizing work and the importance of making money. But some of it is just how we psychologically think about our time versus our money. So we're not very good at tracking time. It's abstract. We always think we're going to have more of it tomorrow than we do today, whereas money is valuable to us now, and we are not unsure that it's going to be valuable to us in six months or a year from now. So we systematically under-invest in our time because of these psychological biases that make money feel more important than mm -hmm. time. Um, we've also talked about the technology trap that can make us time poor. So we're being constantly connected to our devices, which pulls us out of the present, reminds us of other things we can be doing. Um, one thing we've also talked about the mere urgency effect, which is another psychological trap that makes us focus on urgent over important. Something that we haven't touched on, but is related to the extent to which we undervalue our time is just this idea that we overcommit our future time. So we think we're going to have way more time in the future than we do today. And that's a part of the planning fallacy. We really do think that our futures are going to be much more open than our present, which, of course, we should not think is true. If we're busy today, we're likely as, to be as busy uh, today as we are in six months mm -hmm. from now. And we've also talked about this idea of idleness aversion. Um, so a lot of the psychological um, ideas are really things that become traps in our lives. And what's really important is to start to notice where these traps manifest in the context of everyday life. So for example, I noticed that the mere urgency effect for me really comes up right before a a difficult work meeting. Maybe I'm teaching a class for the first time. Maybe I have to give a big data presentation. 
And I notice that I start to gravitate my attention, going back to something we were talking about, my attention gravitates towards my inbox, to scrolling on social media, to activities that are neither meaningful nor productive. And in that moment, it's about asking myself, why? Why am I engaging in that behavior? And often, we might find ourselves making explanations like, well, I'm actually anxious. So that's why I'm engaging in this kind of behavior. Is there something else I could substitute that not very pleasant or productive activity for? So I've started to really try to identify where these traps come up in the context of my everyday life and then say, well, if I do find myself scrolling on social media to as a not very good way of, of quelling some anxiety before a major meeting, Maybe I could substitute that activity with walking around my apartment, going for a walk outside, doing a meditative tape. And that substitution activity helps us focus more on what really matters and helps us stop in the moment and say, why am I doing this exactly? Same when it comes to researching small deals. So I talk about the fact that one way that we undervalue our time in the context of everyday life is being a maximizer on small purchases that don't save us very much money. So as a very concrete example, most American consumers spend three to five hours researching for consumer purchases that cost less than $100. And that adds up a lot across time. For some consumers, of course, that might be worth it. But for many of us, it's actually just eating into our free time and not producing very many financial savings. So as you're going through that behavior, really ask yourself, do it, what is the time cost of this behavior to me? What else could I be doing with this time? Mm-hmm. And as you start to really think about these traps and see them manifest in your everyday life, it's really important to then move up one level and say, why am I doing this? And what else could I do instead? Yeah, it's, um, I, I have a book sitting over here that Dr. John Raddy wrote, um, AD, ADHD 2.0, right? Um, and I think there's this, and what is causing it, I don't know, but the addiction. Um, and it's highly addictive. And we've seen specials about how our devices have addicted us and the things that it's doing and so on. And, um, you know, there's even uh, camps that people go to to get unaddicted from <laughs> these devices, yeah. right? Um, now, use the analogy of Morgan versus Taylor to explain our experience of valuing time over money or money over time. You state to improve our time affluence, you need a plan. Okay, I like that. Um, what is the plan that you recommend and the steps? Yeah, so this is a great point to start talking about some of these strategies. So we really, again, the plan is we first need to identify what traps resonate most with us or getting most in the way of being time affluent that are creating the most stress. So -hmm. just identifying some of these traps in our own life is a great place to start. The second is trying to do what researchers call, or what I started to colloquially call a time audit, Um, if we were going to try to improve our financial health, we would certainly look at how we were spending money and how we could be investing in ways that pay yield greater dividends. Um, We don't do that and should do that more often when it comes to our time. So researchers have devised the strategy of finding time, like as a way to find time in the context. So you're recommending that we audit our time. I know that Dave Crenshaw was on here, the myth of multitasking um, and switch tasking. And he had mentioned that when he did an audit with people and he'd say, just tell me how many hours you're doing whatever during the week. 
they'd proverbially come up with more hours in the week than there really was, meaning like 197. In other words, there's no way because you don't have that many, <laughs> that many hours. But it, you know, it's interesting what people's perception is. And I like the audit. I think the audit thing is probably a big win for everybody if they'd really do a true audit. Now, do you have an audit sheet at your website that they can yeah, do this time I, audit? I can definitely share that. I think the thing that distinguishes some of my time audits from others that exist, which are like cataloging how we spend our time, is I'm not only interested in general episodes, so not necessarily minute by minute, but Think about a typical work day and think about the activities that fill your morning, your afternoon, and your evening. Uh-huh. Thinking at an episode level and then not only writing down kind of general activities of what you did, but in the day reconstruction approach, which is a research-based time diary approach, asking people how they felt during those activities. Uh-huh. So was this a stressful activity? Was it ha- like happiness producing? Was it meaningful? Was it unproductive? And so once you've really t- created this typology, um, or, or written down your activities, rather, you can create this typology, which is really a two by two grid. So this is the, the worksheet that I use in my book, which helps you identify which activities are productive or meaningful, which of those make you feel good, like volunteering or socializing, which of those productive, meaningful activities might not make you feel so good in the moment, but are still helping you pursue important goals like training for a half marathon or working on a book, those things might not always feel pleasant, but they're purposeful. You're doing them for a reason and that that fits with your values. And then you can also start to classify your activities in terms of unproductive and stressful. So that's like the lower left-hand quadrant or um, unproductive and pleasant. That's like relaxing, doing nothing. And we really want to be thinking about minimizing the amount of time that we spend in unproductive, unpleasant activities. For some people, that will be social media. For others, that will be house cleaning or doing not very productive activities at work. And that bottom left-hand quadrant is really the set of activities you really want to give a hard look to. And ask yourself, can I outsource those activities? Can I delegate them? Can I start saying no to them altogether? So the time audit that I propose is not only thinking of what, but also how we feel during those activities and really try to remove unnecessary and unproductive stress from our lives. This book is loaded with ideas and research, and most importantly, it's all been validated. Um, And I think that's really important. And Ashley's also going to give our listeners um, some I don't want to call them even worksheets. I'm going to call them thought-provoking ideas and how you could change uh, your habits uh, for this. And in that, in this concluding chapter to your book, you mentioned that the future of time is filled with promise and peril. Uh, how would you like our listeners to shift their perspective about time and money to live a more balanced and on purpose life. You know, I was just doing an interview and the whole thing was about um, leaders leading with character and it was all about purpose. And we hear a lot about purpose, Ashley, these days. Everybody's saying you got to define your purpose and you come up with your personal credo or whatever it is. What would you say about that with relation to uh, putting things in balance uh, between time and money? Yeah, so I would say um, related to this point around purpose, meaning, happiness, time, money, all of these topics we've been talking about, map out how an ideal day would look like for you in mm-hmm. terms of your the best day, the most purposeful day. 
Mm-hmm. What is your ideal day? And then map that against how you typically spend your time. What an average day, what yesterday looked like for you. And really start to identify where are there discrepancies between how I'm living my life and how ideally I would say I have wanted to live my life. And there really is the true opportunity for areas where we can refocus our thinking and spend more time in certain areas and to also maybe deprioritize extrinsic motivators and take some of our time off the clock, if you will. So that's one area where we can really start to identify where is the way that we spend our time discordant from the bigger purpose that we want our lives to have in the world. So you're calling that, I don't know what you call it, but when I was getting my master's degree in spiritual psychology, we called it the ideal on purpose day. And so the, the discordant that you're referring to is almost like when somebody does a budget. I have a budget here and here's the variance. Well, what created the variance, right? What created the differences in the numbers? And so to have that ideal on purpose day, if you really want it, now here's the key. I think a lot of people can do the analysis. The question is, is how do we get that balance between that, Ashley? How do we say, I want the ideal on purpose day more or no, I'm willing to keep living the way I'm living um, because we certainly see that happening, right? Yeah. So I would really push us all to think about what we are giving up when we focus on extrinsic and uh, financial rewards. So one way I do this in the book to help all of us take a more time-centric approach, or at least see what having a more money-centric approach costs us, um, is to do a calculation. And I call this in the book, happiness dollars. Again, this is based on econometric data that we've sort of packaged in a way that's user-friendly and, and oh, breaks this, this trade-off down in more detail. But we know what a $10,000 increase, we know that that $10,000 increase in income produces a happiness equivalent of about 0.5 on a 10-point happiness scale. So using that as a reference, I then start to catalog all of these time choices that we can make or not make on an everyday basis and how that starts to translate into happiness in terms of a financial metric, Mm -hmm. i.e. happiness dollars. So one really striking example is from one of my colleagues in a published paper is that going from not socializing at all, spending no time with friends and family to socializing every day. So the highest Likert point on that scale produces a happiness equivalent of making $100,000 more of income per year. Not chasing deals, so not spending as much time researching, produces the happiness equivalent of making $400 of income per year. And you can start just outsourcing your most disliked task produces a happiness equivalent of $18,000 more of income per year, even after netting out the amount that you have to spend to outsource in the first place. So we can start to see that although it can be tempting to just keep doing our default behavior and putting money and work first, that we can actually live a more affluent life um, by potentially working fewer hours and spending more time in these ideal, purposeful ways that we aspire to. So I really encourage all of us to really question our behavior. I think why this topic is difficult is everyone says, sure, sure, once I hit that salary number or this job, then then I'll start prioritizing time. However, of course, as we were talking about earlier in this conversation, because of hedonic adaptation, we get used to our circumstance. We start looking toward others with more money um, as 
uh, the next reference point. So once we hit that salary, we told ourselves we were going to have to make or hit that age marker, that landmark in our lives. We just move the reference point. <laughs> and and um, we actually see in data that um, there is a nonlinear association between money and happiness. Once you start making um, quite a bit of money, enough to make basic needs, put money in savings, have nice experiences. Once you hit that point, happiness actually declines because you start comparing yourself to people who have even more than you do. And it's not until then you're at the very top of the distribution that it comes up again. And so if I really encourage all of us and, and myself included, I revisit this often, even though I study it all the time in your personal life, you have to do like a personal audit of how well you're doing is that we would all benefit from focusing more on time now, regardless of what we're working towards or where we start. And importantly, we never know how much time we are going. We to have get. left. Yeah. Right. Um, and so we have to remind ourselves of the, the fleeting nature of time and people who've had near death experiences, chronic illness, who are older. Uh, we see evidence in our data. They're better at this. And so what are some ways that you can remind yourself each day to keep your bigger picture, your broader purpose in mind? Can you put a picture of someone that you love that's no longer with us on your desk? Can you write your purpose statement somewhere where you'll see it every day? Can you be like me and tattoo it on yourself? So you remind yourself of what's really important each day, all the time, because it is difficult. We are pushing against social and cultural norms by prioritizing time and things outside of work. But it's is, it is as important for happiness now um, than ever because now is what we have to work with. And so I really try to encourage people to spend five minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes each day in a different way. Just start there. It doesn't necessarily mean quitting your job or moving. Um, there's a lot of happiness to be gained by simply shifting the balance of our activities in 30-minute increments. 30 minutes of volunteering produces the happiness equivalent of um of in some of our data of dramatically changing your careers uh, as long as you do it on a regular basis. So there's things that we all have control over. We can all spend half an hour, an hour in a way that's slightly different than how we're doing it. So it's really about finding one action and starting there. It's uh, so interesting. And I, when I was hearing you say the happiness dollars, you know, um, what's interesting is the correlation uh, to that was money. And you used all those references to how much more money it was going to be. Now, I get the fact that we needed to have something that was relatable. Um, the question might be, uh, it, it, to me, I'm looking at it, how, what might be more relatable than the money, right? Um, and I think that happiness is, the, they've always said that people that are coming to their finitude, uh, the last days of their lives, um, they never say, I wish I'd spent more hours in the office. Um, yet you see people spending now with COVID even more time on computers and trying to reach other people and doing whatever. But I'm going to tell my listeners, uh, this is a highly suggestive, not tell you, you don't have to do this, but you will really want to get time smart um, from Ashley Willens. Uh, she has just a and interesting, and we're going to give them some downloads too, some sheets that they can download uh, from the website. We'll have those for you. Um, but she gives you steps. I'm going to open it up so they can kind of see what's there. Uh, and, and you know, reach out to Ashley too. It's not like uh, she is so far away you couldn't reach her. Uh, we'll put a link to her website. You can make comments. And Ashley, it's been an 
honor having you on. Um, great work that you're doing. Keep your research going and let's see if we can make some kind of breakthrough here. Um, I know that it's it's on the horizon, but it's people like you that will actually help make that breakthrough. There's something that'll that'll come up that we'll realize what we're doing that we could change as a social scientist um, that are there. I know when I was in class, they used to say, hey, if you ran a video of yourself and somebody followed you all day long and then you played the video back, would you like what you saw? And I loved that one because it was kind of like, oh no, if somebody shot a video of me, I don't know if I'd really like everything that I did during the day. Um, and there's where you're talking about the, the, your time, right? How you're spending your time. So maybe we ought to all go help an elderly lady across the street. That might be, make us feel a lot better than earning um, $100 more doing something. Go get this book. Ashley, thanks so much for being on Inside Personal Growth. Blessings to you. And thank you for all the hard work you've done and that you've put into the book and your research work and all of the students that you're teaching how to do more research with. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome.